May be seated. We're beginning or continuing our series in the book of Ruth this morning. So if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open to Ruth chapter 3. If you remember from two weeks ago, we were in Ruth chapter 2. We saw how uh, Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law, returned from Moab where they had been sojourning and they went to Bethlehem. And Ruth was working in the fields of Boaz for the whole harvest season. And in chapter 3, we're waiting to see what happens next. Does Boaz do anything to solve their problem of widowhood uh, any more permanently than he did in chapter 2? And so if you have your Bibles, let us now read Ruth chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you, did, you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came near to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word that you've revealed to us, that you've given us this history of redemption this history of your church and how you're saving your church uh, through these broken, these sinful and weak people. We ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds that we could understand uh, this, this narrative that we've just read and that we can hold on to Christ through this narrative, that we can apprehend your saving truth um, and respond in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. At some point in almost every story, there's a moment where it seems like everything is going wrong. Right, the, the hero is making all the wrong decisions and he ends up putting himself in a worse situation than he started. 
He might even uh, be put in a morally compromising situation where it seems like he's about to act like a villain rather than the hero we know him to be. Um, and we get to see his true colors. We get to see what his character, how his character will respond in this compromising situation. For example, I recently read The Brothers Karamazov. The hero of this book is an innocent, good-hearted, even somewhat naive young man named Alyosha. And both his father and brothers are infamously Karamazovian. In other words, they're so known for sexual perversion and lust that you know, their name became a synonym for it. And even though that's true, Alyosha seems to have overcome his family habits. He seems to be pure um, and not to go down that uh, sexual perversion that his brother and fathers are known for. But a woman who already had seduced his brother and father made it her goal to corrupt Alyosha. And so while he is in mourning over the death of a friend, she takes advantage of his suffering. She lures him into his house. And it seems like Alyosha is about to fall into his Karamazovian nature. But in the last second, he strengthens himself against temptation, and he acts according to his pure character. He walks out of her house just as pure as he walked in. We see many similar situations to this in the Bible when saints find themselves in morally dangerous situations where we're wondering, is everything about to fall apart? Sometimes they pull through and they show themselves to be genuinely virtuous like Alyosha, but more often than not in scripture, we see times when saints fall into grievous sins like David with Bathsheba. Ruth 3 is this kind of situation. This is a moment where it seems like everything could go wrong. Ruth and Boaz are put in a compromising situations and their characters are put to the test and we're left wondering what will happen, whether they will fall into sin or whether they will act virtuously, act according to the character that we've seen so far in the book. But even more, this can make us wonder why God allows such things to happen. Why does God include a sinful scheme in his history of redemption as we have it in scripture? This is the question that Ruth 3 confronts us with and it will show us how God uses the schemes of sinful people to further his wise plan of redemption. And so we'll see that in our passages, three points. The sketchy scheme, the secret meeting, and the summary and surety. So let's begin in verse one with our first point. Our passage opens with a rhetorical question from Naomi to Ruth, and she says, should I not seek a resting place for you that it may be well with you? By resting place, Naomi's not talking about, you know, just a, just a bed or a place to rest. She's talking about a home and a husband. This is what Naomi said earlier in the book, in, in chapter 1, verse 9. She blessed her daughter-in-laws, and she said, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And this makes sense, because remember, the problem in the book of Ruth is Naomi and Ruth's widowhood. That's, that's how the whole book is set up. That's the problem that we're seeking solution to. And that's because in the ancient world, especially in you know, ancient Israel and that, that period and that time of place, uh, widows did not have any legal or, or physical protection or provision outside of uh, male relatives or a husband that they might procure for themselves. And so it required a lot of work for a widow to survive on her own. We saw that in chapter two, right? We saw Ruth working in the field of Boaz from morning until evening, the whole harvest. That's hard work. And so Naomi knew this was not sustainable. And as her mother-in-law, she knew that she had an obligation to find rest for Ruth. And so we can see here again, Naomi's concern and care for Ruth. Her purpose was not selfish, either to find, uh, fi find rest for herself 
Prue Ruth or to provide an heir for her deceased husband, Elimelech. That's not Naomi's purpose. Instead, Naomi's purpose was that it may be well with Ruth. That's what she says, that it may be well with you. Naomi's concerned with Ruth's well-being, not her own. And this shows us that Naomi genuinely had the long-term welfare of Ruth in mind with what, with what comes next. But the scheme that Naomi hatched in order to give Ruth rest calls into question her concern for Ruth's short-term well-being. So that's what we'll see in her scheme. At first, there's nothing wrong with the solution that Naomi proposes. She, a she asks another uh, rhetorical question in verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? And, you know, the connection might not be immediately obvious, but what she's saying is fairly clear. She's proposing Boaz as the solution to Ruth's problem of widowhood. And chapter 2 revealed that Boaz was a close relative of Naomi through Elimelech, her deceased husband. Boaz was even a redeemer, which was a relative who had a legal obligation to bring out a family member from various legal or financial hardships. We also saw in chapter 2 that Boaz is an honorable and virtuous man. He was generous. He provided for Ruth in, in ways that he was not required to. And so Naomi's right. Boaz would have been the ideal source of rest for Ruth. But after meeting Ruth and learning who she was, he didn't make any move toward a more permanent solution for Ruth and Naomi's hardship. He provided food and protection to them, but he did not do anything else. He didn't do anything more permanent. He could have proposed marriage to Ruth immediately, knowing that that would have been the best solution to their problem of widowhood. Family even had an obligation to do this in Israel. Marrying a widowed relative not only provided for her, it also ensured that her deceased husband's uh, family name and the family property stayed within the family. So this was a, a way of protecting the family property and the family name, and it was something that family was kind of expected to do. But this was only an obligation for a brother-in-law. That's what we see in, in the book of Deuteronomy. It's only an obligation for a brother-in-law to perform this kind of marriage in Israel. And so another male relative could do this for a widow in his family, but he was not legally obligated to do so. And so Boaz could have taken the step to redeem Ruth, but he didn't. He, he did not take initiative to do this. And maybe it's because Ruth continued to dress in mourning. She was wearing a veil, uh, maybe sackcloth and ashes, signaling that she was a widow grieving over her deceased husband. And maybe seeing that, Boaz, out of respect, made no suggestion at marriage. But whatever the reason, Naomi is impatient with Boaz, and she decides to take initiative. But as a woman in the ancient Near East, Naomi was in no place to negotiate a marriage. Marriages were uh, 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 arranged in the ancient Near East, but they were arranged by the men of the family, by the, the fathers and even the brothers sometimes. And so since they had no man to represent or bargain for them, Naomi had to take drastic measures and take things into her own hands. And so this is where Naomi's solution becomes questionable. This is where we see that uh, she might not have Ruth's short-term welfare in mind. First, Naomi told Ruth that Boaz was winnowing at the threshing floor that night. Winnowing is just the process of separating the edible part of the grain from the inedible chaff. And so they would take a fork, like a, a pitchfork, and throw up the grain into the air, and the evening wind would blow away the chaff, and the uh, edible grain was heavier, so it would just fall to the ground in a pile. Uh, threshing floors were usually public spaces on a top of a hill with a rock floor. And so farmers had to sleep at the threshing floor to guard their harvest from thieves. 
but this often became the occasion for a kind of harvest festival, but not the family-friendly kind. <laughs> to celebrate the harvest, they would eat, drink, sleep at the threshing floor, and then prostitutes would go around and offer their services. You can see this in Hosea 9.1, where it says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. This is the context of Naomi's plan. It's at the threshing floor, at this place that is known for uh, feasting, debauchery, and prostitution. And in light of that, Naomi's next instructions are shocking. She told Ruth to wash herself, anoint herself, put on a garment, and go down to the threshing floor. Some have connected this to a bride's preparations for marriage, as we would see in Ezekiel 16, where uh, the, Lord the Lord prepares Israel as a bride for marriage. Others connect this to a seductress's preparations before luring a man. But these two kinds of preparations involve usually really expensive clothing, jewelry, uh, ornate adornments. But all Naomi said was, put on your cloak. This was not Ruth's best clothes. I think the NIV translates it that way. It's not Ruth's best clothes. This was her everyday garment. This was the garment that uh, poor Israelites would actually sleep in as a blanket. And so it's not uh, ornate. It's not... It's not that kind of preparation. But there is another place in the Old Testament that sheds light on the significance of washing, anointing with oil, and then putting on a garment. And this is 2 Samuel 12, 20, where David mourns for his infant son who is dying. After his son died, we're told that David arose from the ground and washed himself and anointed himself and changed his garment. Those are the same three steps that Naomi says. And David did this in 2 Samuel to signal the end of his period of mourning for his son. And so that is the purpose of Naomi's instructions. It's to signal the end of Ruth's period of mourning. Like I said already, Ruth was probably dressed as a widow mourning her husband. The mourning process would involve certain types of clothing. Like I said, a veil, maybe sackcloth and ashes. But even a period in which you would refrain from washing yourself and putting on oil. And so instead of telling Ruth to dress like a bride prepared for her husband or like a seductress trying to entice a man, Naomi tells Ruth to signal the end of her period of mourning. But even though the intention is different, the outcome is kind of similar between these three options. Because Ruth was presenting herself no longer as a mourning widow, but as a marriable young woman. And so Naomi goes on to instruct Ruth not to make herself known immediately, but to wait at the threshing floor until Boaz finished eating and drinking. This is kind of an ambiguous detail as well. Drinking may refer to wine, so that Ruth was waiting until Boaz was intoxicated. This brings to mind Ruth's national origins as a Moabitess, because Moab was the, the son of Lot and his daughter, the result of a sinful scheme and too much wine. Did Naomi's scheme have a similar end in mind? The next instruction doesn't give us a better picture. Naomi told Ruth to take note of the place where Boaz lay down to sleep. And presumably after he had fallen asleep, Ruth was to approach him, uncover his feet, and lie down, and Boaz would tell Ruth what to do. These steps are also ambiguous. Lie down and uncover are common euphemisms in Hebrew. And it's unclear why Ruth was to uncover his legs. Most innocently, this could have been to wake him up because his feet were cold at night. But it could have been less innocent. But whatever the reason, it seems Naomi was confident Boaz would understand Ruth's actions and he would give Ruth further instructions. But again, what did Naomi expect Boaz to tell Ruth to do? There are several possibilities with varying degrees of innocence. 
This raises the bigger question, what was the intended outcome of Naomi's plan? As I've already said, her plan uh, brings to mind other biblical stories that do not paint her intentions in a good light. I already mentioned uh, what happened to Lot in Genesis 19, how his daughters got him drunk and tricked him into giving them sons. Does Naomi expect this descendant of Lot's incestuous relationship, this Moabitess, to act similarly, to trick Boaz when he is drunk? You might also think of Boaz's ancestors, Tamar and Judah. Tamar changed out of her widow's garments, just like Ruth, disguised herself as a prostitute, and tricked her father-in-law Judah into giving her a son. Was this Naomi's goal? Remember when Ruth was going, remember where Ruth was going to meet Boaz at the threshing floor, a place known for debauchery and prostitution. So was Naomi sending Ruth as a prostitute? Or think of Lot's uncle, Abraham. When Sarah became impatient with the Lord's promise to provide a son, she instructed her husband, Abraham, to have a son with her servant, Hagar. Instead of trusting in God to provide and waiting on his timing, Sarah took things into her own hand and tried to gain the promised son by her own effort, her own schemes. This certainly characterizes Naomi's actions. She became impatient with her redeemer and took matters into her own hands. Naomi was seeking to obtain Ruth a resting place by her own crafty schemes and her own effort rather than waiting on the providence of God. We've already seen in Ruth how God has provided for Naomi and Ruth, providing them food, giving them protection, but this has not gotten through to Naomi. She still thinks it's her job to secure rest for them. And so she hatched a very sketchy scheme to do it, a scheme with intentionally ambiguous details and obviously sinful motivations. And perhaps what is more surprising is that Ruth agreed to Naomi's plan. In verse 5, she said, all that you say, I will do. We know Ruth pretty well at this point in the book. She's an honorable woman, a faithful woman. And so it's shocking that she agreed to Naomi's dangerous plan. Maybe she did it only because she wanted to honor and obey her mother. Maybe she did it because she agreed that their desperate situation called for desperate measures. Or maybe she agreed because she knew in the back of her mind that she would remain faithful and chaste, even in this vulnerable and dangerous situation. But whatever her reason, Ruth was willingly risking her safety by following Naomi's scheme. Even if Naomi's intentions were pure, Ruth is still put in a compromising situation. Again, remember the setting of the book of Ruth. This is set in the period of the Judges, a dark and dangerous time in Israel's history, when, every was, when everyone was turning away from the Lord and doing what was right in his own eyes. In Judges 19, the men of Gibeah abused and killed a man's concubine in the middle of the city, and Gibeah wasn't even 10 miles away from Bethlehem. And so could something similar happen to Ruth at the threshing floor outside the city at midnight alone? Even if Boaz is an upstanding guy so far, he might have a character flaw we don't know about. But even if not, some other wicked man might have taken, might, might have stumbled upon Ruth in the dark, easily mistaken her for a prostitute and abused or even killed her. Ruth's physical safety was in peril because of this scheme, but also the safety of her reputation. As we saw in chapter two, Ruth had a good reputation. If anyone saw her at the threshing floor, even if Naomi's plan was innocent, they would assume the worst reasons for a man to be alone with a woman at the threshing floor. They, she would have been viewed as an immoral woman and she would have lost her good reputation. And this could have even had legal consequences. She could have even been given the death sentence for such a practice. And so the point is this, Naomi was willing to sacrifice the safety, reputation, even the life of Ruth with a small chance of giving her a husband. At best, she is being reckless with Ruth's safety, putting her in a compromising situation where she may be forced to engage in sexual immorality, and at worst, 
Naomi is instructing Ruth specifically to commit such a sin. But Ruth was willing to sacrifice her safety, reputation, even her life, for Naomi's plan. She willingly put herself in a dangerous situation, and so we're left on the edge of our seats wondering how she and how Boaz will act in this situation. Will they fall into sin, or will they act according to the character that we've seen so far? That brings us to our second point, the secret meeting where the scheme unfolds. So in verse 6, we're informed that Ruth went down to the threshing floor, and she did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. She waited for Boaz to finish eating and drinking when his heart was glad and watched him lie down to sleep. Then she secretly and quietly approached him and uncovered his feet and lie down. And not even Boaz noticed that she was there. He was fast asleep. And it seems that he didn't notice that she was there for kind of a long time because they both fell asleep and were asleep until midnight. Finally, in the middle of the night, Boaz woke up with a shudder, possibly because his legs were uncovered and he was cold. And he turned over and he noticed that a woman was lying at his feet. Frightfully shocked and confused in his groggy state, he asked, who are you? And Ruth's answer to this question is bold, even diverging slightly from Naomi's instructions. Remember what Naomi told Ruth? She said, to go to Boaz, uncover his feet, lie down, and then wait, and to do whatever he says to do. But how does Ruth respond to Boaz? She didn't just answer his question. She didn't just wait for him to tell her what to do. She actually told him what to do. There are a lot of ways that Boaz could have interpreted her actions, a lot of things that he could have told her to do, but she didn't wait for him to interpret her or to give instructions. She made it clear what her intentions were and what she needed from him. Ruth was not there for sexual immorality. She was there to propose marriage. Ruth said to Boaz, I am your maidservant. Spread your wings over your maidservant, for you are a redeemer. This phrase, spread your wings, uh, wing can also mean the hem of a garment, and this phrase would symbolize marriage. This is how they used it. You can see this in Ezekiel 16, 8. God speaks of marrying the nation of Israel and says, I spread the corner of my garment, or wing, over you. And so this is a way, this is a way of symbolizing a husband's provision for a wife. And so she's proposing marriage to Boaz by saying, spread your wings over your maidservant. And so Ruth is making clear what Naomi left ambiguous. Ruth visited Boaz not as a prostitute or to trick Boaz, but as a young woman proposing marriage. It would have been especially shocking for a woman to be, uh, for a woman in this culture to be so bold and to propose marriage to a man, but Ruth provided a reason for her boldness. She said, you're a redeemer. And Ruth told him that marrying her is the way that he should redeem his family. But this also shows us Ruth's character. By mentioning that Boaz was a redeemer, she calls to attention not her obligation to her, but her obligation to Naomi. Because Boaz, is, uh, Boaz was primarily Naomi's redeemer. He was only Ruth's redeemer because she was Naomi's uh, daughter-in-law. And so here we see, just as Naomi was trying to provide for Ruth's well-being earlier in the chapter, Ruth here is trying to provide for Naomi's well-being. And so despite Naomi's unclear and unsavory intentions, Ruth makes her intention clear. She has... Uh, she was not on the threshing floor to trick Boaz or to take part in Harvest Fest debauchery. She has shown herself faithful in a compromising situation. But what about Boaz? What will he do? Even the most righteous and pure men would be tempted in the situation. Boaz is a faithful and pious Israelite, but will he remain so while a beautiful young woman who has just proposed marriage lies down at his feet in the middle of the night at the threshing floor? Ruth clarified her intentions, yes, but Boaz could still could have taken advantage of her. 
Even if, he even if he accepted the proposal of marriage, he could have sinned by approaching her before marriage, or he might have feigned acceptance, taken advantage of her, and then the next day thrown her out and maligned her character, or he might have just simply harshly rebuked her for such a foolish marriage proposal. But Boaz didn't do any of that. He didn't fall into the obvious sexual temptation. He, even as Ruth's possible future husband, he didn't take advantage of her. He didn't malign or accuse her. He didn't rebuke her as a foolish girl for proposing marriage to a rich older man. What did Boaz do? Instead of cursing her as a prostitute or as a fool, he blessed her. Just as we saw in chapter 2, Boaz's mouth opens with blessing. He says in verse 10, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have done better in your later act of faithfulness than your first by not going after young men, whether rich or poor. Again, this word faithfulness or kindness is the word uh, in Hebrew, hesed. Boaz not only blessed Ruth for coming to him in the middle of the night and creating a morally compromising situation and proposing marriage, he even called this an act of faithfulness, an act of faithfulness that was greater than her first act of faithfulness. Ruth's first act of faithfulness we saw in chapter 1, where she refused to abandon her mother-in-law. She committed herself to Naomi in life and death and even professed faith and commitment to the God of Israel. And Ruth's last act of faithfulness was proposing marriage to Boaz, despite the fact that she did through so through Naomi's scheme. And this was an act of faithfulness because Ruth could have married any young man. She could have gone after anyone she wanted, but instead she sought a marriage that would not only benefit her, but would benefit her mother-in-law. Because as I've already said, Boaz is primarily Naomi's redeemer. And so this marriage would benefit Naomi. She did so not only out of faithfulness to her family, especially Naomi, but even for her deceased husband. She was seeking redemption for her family, not just rest for herself. And Boaz did not just bless her and praise her, he assured her that he would act faithfully. Boaz said in verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for the whole assembly of my people knows that you are a virtuous woman. Boaz agreed to everything. He didn't just treat her with purity. He also treated her with dignity, with compassion, with generosity. He agreed to marry Ruth and to redeem her and Naomi. And the reason Boaz did so is probably even more significant. It's because Ruth is well known as a worthy and virtuous woman. This is that word that was used to describe Boaz in chapter 2. Remember, it's that Hebrew word hayil, which means virtue or strength or valor. And this confirms what I said two weeks ago. Ruth is a concrete example of the Proverbs 31 woman who is also called a woman of hayil, a woman of virtue or strength. Proverbs tells us what a virtuous woman should look like, but Ruth shows us. Ruth was a woman, uh, an outstanding woman, a woman of substance, and, and how did she get this reputation of being a woman of virtue? Look again at her actions throughout the book so far. Instead of taking the easier path of returning to her people and looking for a husband, she took the more difficult path of committing herself to Naomi and the God of Israel. Instead of wallowing in grief like Naomi, she worked hard in the field and provided for them. Instead of seeking a marriage that would only benefit her, she sought a marriage that would benefit her family, especially Naomi. Instead of acting sinfully in a compromising situation, she acted honorably with purity. This is what it looks like to be a worthy woman, a woman of valor. And this is why Boaz is so enthusiastic about marrying her. 
It wasn't because of her looks or her age. It was because of her virtuous character. But there is a complication, despite Boaz's enthusiasm over marrying her. This was not simply a marriage proposal. This was an act of redemption. And we'll see exactly what this means next week in chapter 4, but this redemption involved more than just marriage. Other legal and financial matters came into play. One of those matters has potential to throw a wrench in their plan because it's true that Boaz is a redeemer, but there is a redeemer who is more closely related to Naomi than he is. That means the other relative would have the first right of refusal in redeeming them and marrying Ruth. But despite this complication, Boaz assured Ruth that he would act swiftly. He said he will present the case to the near redeemer in the morning and will allow him to redeem Ruth if he wants to. But Boaz swears in the name of the Lord that if the near redeemer declines, then Boaz will redeem Ruth and Naomi. This sets up the, cho- the, the, the problem for chapter four, so we'll see how this is resolved next week. But for now, Boaz tells Ruth to go back to sleep and wait until the morning. He has her safety in mind, knowing that it would be dangerous for her to travel at home at midnight. But Ruth and Boaz both know that she should not be seen leaving the threshing floor. If anyone did recognize Ruth, they would, be, uh, they would assume the worst possible reasons for a woman to be alone with a man at night at the threshing floor. And this would ruin both of their reputations and even their chances for marriage. The other redeemer could hear about it and bring legal accusations against them. And so Ruth was careful to wake up before the sunrise and left before anyone could have recognized her uh, as she went on her way home. But before she could leave, Boaz stopped her and told her to hold out her garment. This is probably a veil or, or a shawl. And she held it out and he put six handfuls of barley in it and sent her home. He didn't explain this, this gift at this point, but we'll see the significance of Boaz's gift in our third point, the summary and surety. Verse 16 tells us that Ruth safely returned to her mother-in-law. When Naomi saw Ruth, she asked her, how did it fare, my daughter? In Hebrew, Naomi is actually asking the same question that Boaz did earlier. In Hebrew, it's, who are you? She's not, she doesn't, she's not confused. She doesn't know who uh, Ruth is. This is not a question of identification, but one of classification. Not just who are you, but who are you returning as? Is this Ruth the Moabitess or Ruth the betrothed of Boaz? Ruth responded by recounting everything that Boaz did and said he would do for her. And she gave special attention to this gift of barley that we just saw. She reports that Boaz said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And so it turns out this gift was primarily for Naomi. This gift communicated the seriousness of his intentions It was given to assure Ruth, but especially Naomi, that Boaz would act, and he would act swiftly. And it's likely that Boaz gave the gift particularly to assure Naomi because he knew that his obligation comes from his relation to her. He was primarily Naomi's redeemer, and only Ruth's redeemer because he was Naomi's, uh, she was Naomi's daughter-in-law. And so just like in chapters one and two, chapter three closes with Naomi's evaluation of what just happened. In response to Ruth's report and the gift, Naomi told Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. It remains unclear if this is the outcome that she intended with her scheme, but it it seems that she is pleased either way. And she was certain that Boaz would conclude the matter that day. And at this point, it seems like Ruth and Naomi are in a win-win situation. Someone will redeem them, whether it's Boaz or the nearer redeemer. And even though we're rooting for Boaz, we're not given an indication if Naomi and Ruth have a preference. All they know is they did their part. 
Their plan did what it was ultimately intended to do. It kicked their redeemers into the gear. There were several other outcomes that could have happened, right? Just think of the other similar biblical accounts I've mentioned. Tamar's scheme ended with her almost being stoned to death for prostitution, but instead Judah was publicly shamed. The scheme of Lot's daughters ended with incest. Sarah's scheme ended with the abuse of Hagar and ultimately Abraham having to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Each of these schemes ended in some tragedy, but not the scheme of Naomi. And one reason Naomi's scheme didn't end like these other human schemes was the character of Boaz and Ruth. They were put in a situation where either one of them could have initiated various wicked actions, but neither of them did. And my friends, this is the kind of men and women that we should strive to be. So many biblical accounts give us examples of what not to do in a morally compromising situations. And Ruth chapter 3 is a very similar situation to that of Judah and Tamar, or Lot and his daughters. But when we expected to get another example of what not to do, Boaz and Ruth gave us an example of what to do. And so we must strive to follow their example, to become virtuous men and women who act honorably in compromising situations. But why were they able to act honorably? It wasn't an act of sheer willpower. It wasn't a magic spell that came over, th over them. Rather, their actions were pure because their characters were pure. We are creatures of habit. A majority of the time, we act in any given situation because we have already trained ourselves to act in similar situations. This is what I mean. Striving to be like Ruth and Boaz does not mean waiting around to be in a morally compromising situation and then waiting to see how we turn out. Rather, it means striving to act with purity and chastity now. It means cultivating a righteous character before you're put in situations where your character is put to the test. How do you cultivate a righteous character? Well, you create righteous habits. You do righteous things by the power of God's word and spirit. Instead of allowing yourself to dwell in that sinful thought, you pray and ask God to deliver, your, deliver you from your sinful desires. Instead of giving in to the temptation of pornography, you fight that temptation with the truth of God's word. Instead of filling your mind with sinful thoughts and imaginations, you fix your mind on what is honorable and pure. The character of Ruth and Boaz were one reason that Naomi's scheme ended in good. But the greater reason this happened was the power and grace of God. Ruth and Boaz did not overcome temptation by their own strength. They were sinful people like you and me. They were not perfect. Even if we cultivate a sinful, uh, rather, if we, even if we cultivate a righteous character like Boaz and Ruth, we still have remnants of sin in our hearts and minds. And we have to fight these remnants daily. And it can seem like a losing battle, like we're going one step forward, two steps back. But we must remember that like Boaz and Ruth, we aren't alone on the front lines as we battle our sin. There is one who is fighting for us, whose grace subdues our sin and makes it subservient to his plan of redemption. This is ultimately what we see in Ruth 3 and all the similar accounts that I have mentioned. We see evil schemes being turned around to end in good by God's grace. If it were not for God's grace, Ruth and Boaz would have fallen. They would have followed the example of the many saints who came before them, but God gave them the power by his spirit to follow his law. It was God who turned the situation around for good, not any human. That's what we see in every other biblical account. Even when the saints fell into sin, God turned it around for good. This doesn't excuse their sin, but it does show that God is even more powerful than their sin. He turns their sin around to end in his good purposes. Naomi made a scheme that at least involved the possibility of sexual immorality, and she had no problem with that. But God used her scheme to further his plan of redemption. 
His plan to redeem Ruth and Naomi, yes, but even to redeem you and me. Because as we'll see next week through Naomi's scheme, Boaz does marry and redeem Ruth. And their son is the grandfather of King David, the ancestor of our Lord Jesus. Even more, all of the sketchy schemes that we have mentioned were turned around to the good outcome of our Redeemer's birth. Abraham did eventually have the promised son with Sarah, and Isaac continued the line of the covenant family. Tamar bore a son to Judah, and Perez, their son, continued the messianic line. And even the incestuous conception of Moab ultimately results in Christmas through the story of Ruth and Moab. Uh, sorry, Ruth and Boaz, Ruth the Moabitess. This is what I mean. God is in the business of turning human sin around to end in his redemptive purposes. He has been since Ch Genesis 3, and he will be until Christ returns. God doesn't just redeem us from our sin. He even uses sinful people and their sinful schemes to redeem us. We see this in Ruth 3 and in Sarah and Hagar, Tamar and Judah, Lot and his daughters, but we see it to the highest degree in the life of our Redeemer. This is what I mean. The ultimate human scheme that God turned around to work for his redemption was the scheme of the Jewish and Roman leaders to crucify the Lord of glory. What these wicked men meant for evil, God meant for good to bring salvation. This is what Peter said in Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Jewish leaders and the mob may have thought that they crucified and killed Jesus to fulfill their own evil schemes, but their sinful scheme was used by God to fulfill his definite plan. They were just actors in God's plan. At the very moment when evil thought it had final victory, killing the Redeemer, God overruled evil and made it subservient to his perfect plan of salvation. For through Jesus' death, we have been given life. Jesus conquered our enemies through his bloody crucifixion. He put our sin to death on the cross, and he raised from the dead to defeat death. Just like Ruth was willing to sacrifice her reputation, her safety, even her life for the sake of Naomi, Jesus sacrificed everything for us. He was beaten, mocked, spit on, as if he were a detestable person, and he was crucified like a criminal alongside thieves, and God turned all of this evil around to end in redemption, just like Naomi's scheme. So put your faith in Jesus. He is your redeemer. His death brings you life and delivers you from sin. If you find yourself acting unfaithfully in a sinful scheme, if you find yourself more like Tamar and Judah than Boaz and Ruth, then come to Jesus. Repent and believe in him. He freely forgives our sins and presents us as righteous before God. Do not be ashamed to come to him because of your sin. Your sin is the very reason he came to earth, the very reason he died on the cross. And if you find yourself suffering under the sinful schemes of other people, remember Jesus. He suffered under the worst sin ever committed, killing God's own son, but God subdued, conquered, and turned the evil purposes of mankind around to end in his work of redemption. This is what God did with Naomi's scheme, what he did with Jesus' crucifixion, and what he is doing with all human sin. And when Jesus comes back, he will make all wrongs right. He will conquer and punish all his and our enemies, and he will wipe away your every tear. Sin and death shall be no more. The sinful schemes of humans shall be no more, for God will turn them all around and make all sin subservient to the salvation of his church. Amen. Let's pray. 
Almighty God and Father, we cannot thank you enough and praise you enough for your omnipotent work of redemption. Your strength and power are most beautifully seen in the way that you subdue evil and turn its purposes around to serve your good ends. We praise you especially for bringing salvation to your church through the scheme of evil men who killed our Lord Jesus Christ. Your strength and power have never been most brilliantly displayed than when Jesus died on the cross. Lord, we look forward to that day when sin and death will be no more and when you finally turn all evil around to serve your wise plan of redemption. Strengthen and establish us until that day that by your Holy Spirit we might persevere. And by your Spirit, give us righteous characters so that we might act righteously in the midst of sinful schemes. Would you stir in our hearts a gratitude for your redemption that we might offer our lives as living sacrifices in light of your mercies. And as we prepare ourselves to give gifts for the furtherance of your church, we ask that you would grant us thankfulness and grant in us a generous and cheerful heart and that you would bless these gifts for the advance of your gospel. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. <laughs>